go ahead and get started here. As we come down to the end, as we're only now exactly one month away from the final, so one month from now you will be starting the final. Scary, right? Oh, let's see what else we got here, Josh. Um, last thing due today is the article review, so you can submit that. Or if you have it here, you can always give it to me. If not, you can submit it up on uh, D2L before 6 o'clock tomorrow. And again, if you've done the first two and you're happy with your grades, you can skip that one. If you missed one, make sure you do that because that will drop a zero and that'll make a big difference in your grade. Dropping off zero out of 50 points for, even if you don't do great on it, will make a, essentially it's extra credit if you think of it that way. If you didn't do one, it's extra credit. If you did both of them, it's not extra credit. But if you didn't do any, it's essentially extra credit because you're dropping a zero and getting whatever points you get on this. So make sure you do that and get that into me. Uh, the list of articles is still up there uh, back in the very first sec very first module up on uh, D2L. You're, uh, you're welcome to select another one of those to use. So make sure you get that in um, today, well, by 6 o'clock tomorrow. And then homework four is due on the 20th. So that's the next thing we have coming up due. That'll be the, in preparation for exam four, which will be on the 25th. And if you remember, I told you I switched things around that week. That's Thanksgiving week. So we're gonna do the exam and the lab will be Monday. Lecture will be Wednesday, just in case there's a few people who are traveling. Um, I'm still gonna cover lecture, it's still a day. It's not that you're, I'm canceling class, I'm just, rearranging it so that you don't have to feel that you're missing an exam if for some reason you have to miss Wednesday if you're going to be traveling for the holidays. So the exam will be on Monday, we'll do the lab on Monday, and then the lecture material for that week will be on Wednesday. So that's just kind of switched around. And then we're pretty much done after that. By the time we get through Thanksgiving week there, we've got two more class days the following week and the final, and that's it. So coming up very close to the end right now. Um, for what we'll be doing this week, I'm going to cover, we're, we're scheduled to cover chapter 25. I'm going to do that and we'll probably get started on 26 and 27 as well because I'm trying to free up time next week for the solar project. I want to talk about it on Monday and I'm hoping to leave Wednesday completely open for lab for where you're working on the project. So I'm going to kind of do the introduction to it on Monday and then leave you the full class period on Wednesday to work on the lab, to go through the calculations, to have the graphs done so that hopefully by Wednesday of next week when you leave here, you've got that portion of the project done completely and it's done and settled. So make sure you're bringing in your data sheet. Don't forget your data sheet next Wednesday. I'll have some numbers for you to work with, but if you're here and you can add all of yours in at the same time, it saves you that much work over Thanksgiving in writing up the project. If you have your data all calculated, if you have your graphs all done, you really only have to concentrate on the write-up. So it'll make it a lot easier for you. All right, so questions assignment-wise. All right, well, we have our picture for today. If you can't guess, that is our moon, or a little portion of our moon. It's actually looking at a couple of the lunar craters there are two prominent craters. This is actually an image taken from Earth, so you can get an image of you know, this much detail of the moon being, one of, being the closest astronomical object to us. We can see quite a bit of detail from Earth. 
although we're looking at craters here, this prominent one, and this prominent one, we're looking at things that are close to 100 miles across. So these aren't little tiny craters by any sense. Um, meteor crater out in Arizona, a prominent crater on Earth, is about a mile, one mile across. So you could fit 100 of those across one of these much larger craters. We've had these impacts on Earth. They get all worn down. So weathering effects on the Earth will wear them down very quickly. They does, that doesn't happen on the moon. These craters, this one is estimated to be close to 4 billion years old. So dates back to the very early history of the solar system. And we can also see uh, very worn down craters. If you want to see even older craters, if you look right in there, that's the remnants of a crater that has been flooded, that has had more impacts over it. So that would be an even much older crater dating back to the very earlier history of the solar system, earlier history of the formation of the moon. So you can get an idea of how old a part of the moon is by looking at the number of craters. The more craters you see, like over here where there's lots of craters and craters are on top of craters is a very old region. If you look in here, very few craters and especially very few big craters. Those are much younger regions of the moon. All right, questions? All right, well, the other thing I wanted to show quickly, see if it's still running there. Yes, there it is. That's what's going on right now. I think we talked about the Mercury transit. Uh, that is actually a live image of the sun. That's not a sunspot, that's actually Mercury passing in front of it. Uh, the transit started, there you can see the limb of the moon right over there. So the transit started about an hour ago and for our local time runs till about one o'clock. So over that time, it's slowly passing in front of the sun and we'll see it transit there. So chance to be able to see that, you know, it doesn't happen every class. I think the last one was back in 2016. The next one is 2032. So you got a long time to wait to be able to see something like this again. And this is just, there's a number of live feeds that are showing this. Just have a telescope po focused on the sun, following the sun, and you can watch. And if we come back, if I remember towards the end of class, we can probably come back and you'll be able to see that it's even further moved across the surface of the sun. And if you want, go look at it, you know, later, lunchtime or something. You'll see that it's getting towards the other limb of the sun. Now, the transits only occur occur rarely. You have to have everything lined up perfectly for this to occur. So the Earth and the Moon and the Earth and the Sun and Mercury have to be in a perfect line, perfectly lined up. And that's why it only occurs on rare occasions. Sometimes there's a decade between them. Venus is even more rare. The last one of Venus was 2012, and the next one isn't for another 100 years, more than 100 years from now. So the transits of Venus are even, uh, even harder to occur just because of the way the planets and their orbits line up. You can only get them at very specific times. So I want to at least take a, a minute and show that, that you can actually see, you know, kind of what's going on right now. That is Venus, that is Mercury, not Venus, Mercury passing in front of the sun. All righty. Other questions? All right, well, then we had, we were almost done with chapter 24, as I recall. And I just talked about black holes, and the last little thing I wanted, last little section I wanted to talk about that will finish up, finish up chapter 24 is something else relatively new, and that is gravitational waves.
Had you taken the class five years ago, they would have been theor- completely theoretical. We knew that, they, that general relativity predicted them, but we, five years ago, we didn't, had never detected gravitational waves. Um, they are essentially something that is uh, produced by an object with mass that is accelerating. So if it's moving, and it's moving quickly, if it's changing its direction, if it's changing its speed, it is giving off gravitational waves. So if I'm stopped and I start walking, I'm now give, I start giving off gravitational we- waves when, my, when I accelerate, when I go from not moving at all to moving, if I change my direction, I am giving off gravitational waves. However, they also depend on the amount of mass. So very low mass for me, I'm not giving off very strong gravitational waves, they're not going to be detectable. Larger mass objects will give off stronger gravitational waves. So the moon orbiting around the Earth, the Earth orbiting around the sun would give off even larger, gravi- larger amounts of gravitational waves. They're still om- impossible to detect. Again, five years ago, we couldn't detect any of them. We still couldn't detect the gravitational waves produced by the moon or the, sun, or the Earth or the sun moving around the center of the galaxy. We need really strong, really massive objects that are moving very fast, that have very high accelerations. And the reason is that the gravitational force is very weak. We'll talk in a week or two about the four forces of nature. There's gravity is one, there are four others. One binds the atoms together. Another one is the electromagnetic force between positive and negative charges. So those are all much, much stronger than gravity. Gravity is a very, very weak force. So the waves that it gives off are really hard to detect. Our first detection was using a binary pulsar. So we didn't really detect the gravitational waves themselves, but the gravitational waves given off, just like anything else, take energy. So they take energy away from the pulsar and slow everything down. So they make it go slower and slow, make everything go slower and slower. And we can estimate the amount of, we can calculate based on general relativity, how much energy it should give off in gravitational waves. And we can measure how much energy the pulsar is losing, and the two matched up perfectly. So it's a good sign that the amount of energy the pulsar is losing is exactly what general relativity predicts should be given off in gravitational waves. But our instruments weren't sensitive enough to be able to detect them, to detect those waves themselves. It's only been in the last few years that we've been able to detect the gravitational waves directly. And that is through uh, a couple of gravitational wave telescopes that have been built. Uh, This is an example of one of them. And it doesn't look like the ordinary telescopes that we look at because it's trying to detect something different. It's not looking for radio waves or visible light waves, which are all electromagnetic. It's looking for gravitational waves, so vibrations in space, essentially, that are occurring. So in order to detect them, we need a really strong source of gravitational waves. So what are the massive things we have? Neutron stars, black holes. If they're spinning around each other and collapsing in, they're going faster and faster and faster and faster. They've got a really high acceleration. They're really massive, really high acceleration, lots of gravitational waves, easily detectable. Now... I say black holes, they can't escape from the black hole, but from the area around the black hole. Gravitational waves can't travel any faster than light. So 
They still can't get out of a black hole, but we can detect them as those black holes approach each other. Those very high masses accelerating can give off gravitational waves. So that's one example, or a massive star imploding. As all that material rushes to the center, that's accelerating material giving off gravitational waves. And they've been detected through these telescopes. Um, they're called LIGO for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So they are set up to discover gravitational waves. Now, there's the complex at the center, which would have the analyzation equipment. But the telescope itself stretches out along these arms, all off in this distance. There's two of these in this country, uh, one in Livingston, Louisiana, the other in Hanford, Washington. So there's two of them to be able to observe. And what they do is they'll send a laser out along this route and bounce it back and forth and look for slight deviations in the returning beam. And by slight deviations, we're looking for changes less than the size of an atomic nucleus. That's how accurately measurements need to be made. So you send the laser beam out. As it comes back, if gravitational waves are going through it, it's going to change space and time around it and going to change the uh, material that's returning, the laser that's returning. So it's going to be slightly off from what it would have been if there were not gravitational waves. Now, there are always gravitational waves passing through it, most of them are going to be so small, they're not going to be detectable. Two of them, uh, there's two of them because you want to eliminate any local effects. And you can imagine that just vibrations around this, somebody's slamming a door. I mean, you're talking about moving things on atomic nuclei scale. Someone slams the door in one of the buildings here, that could give you a false signal. A truck rumbling by on one of the roads off in the distance could give you a false signal. However, the likelihood of exactly the same thing happening at the same time here in Louisiana versus out in Washington state is, is infinitesimal. You know, the truck is not going to go by exactly at the same speed. Same, you're not going to get the same signal. You might get signals, but you're looking for something that matches up. If this is coming from space, you're going to get the same signal here as you do in Washington. And there's going to be a time delay between them based on how long it takes. They travel at essentially the speed of light. So there's going to be that fraction of a second delay between when one occurs and when the other occurs. So you do that to eliminate local effects. There's another one over in Italy now uh, done, that's done as well to be able to do this. And it was in 2015 that we first detected gravitational waves. And that was detected. It wasn't actually announced to 2016. The actual the, uh, detection was on September the 14th of 2015. That's how the gravitational wave events get named. The name was GW150914. So gravitational wave event that occurred on, in 2015, September the 14th. So that's when it was detected. And what was seen when you looked at the two, this is Hanford, Washington, this is Livingston, you saw that they overlapped, and once you got the offset, they overlapped really, really well. Usually you just get noise here, but when you get that pulse of strong gravitational waves coming through, you get this kind of oscillation within that laser beam. So you can see it oscillates a little bit, gets really, really strong, and then kind of settles down to back to nothing. So it's very quick. You have to be ready for it. You have to be constantly observing, looking for these little tiny pulses. So this is what you should, this is what you see, this is what you should get theoretically. 
So you can kind of match things up, and you can then calculate. We know how general relativity works. We can calculate what would have to happen. What would have to be colliding? How would things have to be accelerating? What would the masses be? So that we can match our theoretical curves, try to get them as well matched as we can with the actual data. And what we find for this first one is that it was consistent with two black holes merging together. One of about 20 times the mass of the sun and one about 36 times the mass of the sun. So if you do the calculation as these two accelerate in and merge together, that's what it shows. Question? I don't think they dis. I mean, they'll still be they'll, they'll weaken over distance, but not to not maybe not as much. I'd have to check on that. I'm not as I'm not as up to date on those as I could be. But yes, they would be. They'd be hard to detect. But we can detect like we can detect light over billions of years. You're got. That's why you have an incredibly strong source, so you can detect it. So yes, they would dissipate. And we're looking at ones that are 1.3 billion light years away. So. When you have something this intense, and you can imagine these two black holes spiraling in, you know, if they're far away, they're just orbiting normally. But as they get closer and closer, forces get stronger, everything gets stronger. Those things are whipping around each other. So when you have 36 solar masses moving really fast, I can't move my fingers fast enough to show how fast those things must have been orbiting at that end, right before they coalesced. So that would be a tremendous strong amount of gravitational wave. So yes, they dissipate. The ones from the moon should be a lot stronger, relatively, because they're not going to have much time to weak. But they're so weak in the first place that we're just not capable. We, we wouldn't see that signal within all this noise you see here. You wouldn't see the actual signal. But yes, they would, they would dissipate as, over, over, space, over time as space and as they travel as well. They're not dissipate so much as they spread out. I mean, it's just like light. The light doesn't go anyplace. It's just instead of going through all concentrated as it, spends, it spreads out as you go further and further away. So that was the first detection. We've had more of them since then. We've now got, I can't remember, up to eight or ten detections or even more. It's a lot of detections that we've had of these. We can detect black holes merging. We can actually detect lower mass things now, like neutron stars merging. And as we have more of these uh, devices online, it makes it a little bit easier because you can eliminate any sort of false uh, events that occur. So it's sort of opening up a new field of astronomy to be able to study. Instead of just studying light, now we're studying gravity waves. We've known about them for, well, for 100 years. In fact, general relativity predicted that gravitational waves should exist. It just wasn't until a few years ago that we were able to detect them. And now we're essentially studying a whole new field that we didn't have before. All right, so finishing up here, um, the gravitational waves are produced by the motion of any mass of objects. First detected in 2015. So again, if you take in the class five years ago, 2014, they still would have been, you know, here's the gravitational waves wouldn't have had their own separate section. I would have mentioned them in general relativity that, hey, here's a prediction that we're trying to detect. But now we've actually been able to detect multiple those, multiple ones. Really, right now, just with anything else, we're detecting the most massive objects. So black holes, neutron stars. As we get improvements, we refine the equipment, we'll be able to narrow that down and be able to detect smaller mass motions. 
So it's, again, it's the beginnings of a whole new field of astronomy to be able to study that once we can, as we can to study objects with less and less mass. Alrighty, questions? All right, well, we will go to, there's Mercury still moving. And we will go on to 25, which is our chapter for the week. And if I get through that early enough, I'll probably get started on 26. And if not, we'll start on 26 uh, on Wednesday. So we'll try to get a little bit of a jump start. But we're going to move off from talking about stars, just stars themselves, just talking about galaxies. And we started talking about stars. I talked about the sun. We start talking about galaxies. Chapter 25 is looking at our galaxy. So the galaxy that we know the best. So how do we determine the structure of our galaxy? How do we know what our galaxy looks like? Well, that's difficult because we're stuck inside it. And I like to give the example, you know, how do you determine the shape or the extent of a building if you're stuck inside it? So if you were blindfolded and brought to this building and there's, you know, and, and confined to this room, which is essentially what we are, we're confined to one spot in our galaxy, we can't move around, uh, any significant difference, how do you know how, what the building's like? You might have a few little windows you can peek out through, get some idea that there's, there's something across the hall there and that this side maybe is the end of the building. How far does it go that way? You know, we don't know. We don't know what's going off there. Maybe you could use x-rays to see through and say, oh, there is another room on that side. But then what's beyond that? We have the same kind of problem because we're stuck inside our galaxy. We can't just go out and look back down on it and say, oh, it's easy. We can see what our galaxy looks like. So one of the things that we can do is make measurements, is count stars. How many stars do we see in various directions? And this was done by William Herschel back in the late 1700s. So what he did was just look out in all different directions in the sky and count how many stars he saw in this direction and then made to get, put together a map. And that map put us pretty close to the center of our galaxy. See there, there's some sections that stretch off over here. So this that is definitely flattened. We knew that our galaxy was flattened. It wasn't a big, uh, big sphere. That it was a flattened disk because we could see more stars when we looked to these directions than when we looked this direction. You didn't see near as many stars. How far you see out there, how long the different sections are, tells you how many stars you see. So the further this goes out from the sun, hey, you see more stars there, but if you're looking this direction, you see far fewer stars. So he gave us our first rough map of the Milky Way, which was not very accurate. It was as accurate as he could. It's not that he did anything wrong, except that he didn't realize the extent of dust. And we talked about the interstellar material. There was dust and gas. Well, gas you can see through, Dust, if it gets dense enough, you cannot. So actually, part of our galaxy over here, there's, our galaxy actually extends way over here, way off in the distance. But we can't see that because there's so much dust in the disk of our galaxy in that direction. We also don't see the full extent over here because of dust within our galaxy. And that dust blocks out the light. It makes everything seem fainter. But over time, it also makes things... Uh, it'll make things 
disappear. Right? If you put enough dust in the way, it blocks out. It blocks things out. It's kind of like looking through a solid wall. You know, we know the sun's out there, but we can't see it unless we look through the windows. Right? No sunlight coming through the wall there. Well, dust isn't as dense as the wall by any extent, but particles of dust extending over light years, particle here, particle there, eventually, no matter where you look, your line of sight hits a particle of dust and blocks it out. And you can see there's a very dense area here in dust. Because if you look a little above it, you can see well out. And if you look a little below it, you can see well out. But here, not that there's no stars there, but there's just too much dust as you look towards the disk of our galaxy for us to be able to see out in that direction. So that was one of the earlier measurements, more modern measurements. As I said, Herschel's measurements were limited because of not knowing about dust. And he was only seeing one part of our galaxy. So he's only seeing this little portion of our galaxy here. When we try to look towards the center of our galaxy, it's just not visible. It's just not visible. There's too much dust in here, and he can't see out there. So what was done later was to look not just at the stars in our galaxy, but to look at some of the brighter objects that are part of our galaxy, which were the globular clusters. Globular clusters are old. They date back to the early origin of our galaxy. And they form some, somewhat of a spherical distribution around the galaxy. They're also really bright. I mean, you've got 100,000 stars there, so you're not trying to see just one star. You've got light of 100,000 stars combined together. So you can see them over a much larger distance than you could see an individual star. So if you're looking out from the sun out over here, a star at this distance wouldn't be visible. But 100,000 stars together, their combined light would be. So you could see them over much larger distances. And when you plotted, figured out their distances, how do you get their distances? If you remember, are our Lyrae stars. They were like the Cepheids. They were variable stars that gave us a measure, way of measuring distances. They're very prominent in globular clusters. So he'd measure the globular clusters, find some RR Lyrae stars, and that immediately gave us a distance. You knew what direction they're in. If you can pin down the distance, you can make sort of a map of the globular clusters. And what they showed, contrary to what Herschel gave us, is that we're not at the center of our galaxy. There's our sun, but if you imagine these as a big sphere, the center of our galaxy is way over here someplace something we can't see. So the stars that we're seeing, when you go and look out at night, you're seeing all of those local stars. You're seeing the stars right around us. You're not seeing stars over here. They're not, vis they're not visible. They're either too faint or they're blocked by the dust. But using the globular clusters gave us a better idea of how the galaxy is actually extended outward. So we could actually see the extent of our galaxy. And that really gave us a first idea of you know, where we were positioned within our galaxy. Herschel thought maybe we'd be near the center. He didn't understand the dust. So now we know that we're actually well out from the center of our galaxy, probably about 2 thirds to 3 quarters of the way towards the edge. It's actually a good thing for us, because we probably wouldn't have life if we were close to the center of our galaxy. Denser concentration of stars, more star formation, more supernovae. And if you remember, a supernova within 50 or 100 years would wipe us out. So they're probably a, good, a bad place to look for life would probably be near the center of the galaxy. Just too many supernovae going on, and too much, which would sterilize surfaces of planets. So we're, we being a little further out is actually a good thing for us. So 
Based on this, we're able to put together kind of a picture of our galaxy. There's the distribution of globular clusters, the red dots here, show where the different globular clusters are. There's our sun, and there's the center of our galaxy, and we break it down into a couple of different parts. Our galaxy is a flattened disk. If you've ever seen the Milky Way, it's a nice milky patch that goes, the relatively thin patch that goes across the sky. That's looking, when you're looking at the disk of our galaxy, you're looking at the concentration of stars. That's where most of the material we look at in our galaxy exists. Our sun exists there. All the nebulae that we've looked at are in the disk of our galaxy. There's no nebulae out here in these outer regions. Star clusters, well, if they're globular clusters, they're all over the place, but the open star clusters, again, are concentrated in the disk. So most of the things that we've looked at, stars, galaxies, stars, uh, stars, nebulae, are all within the disk of our galaxy. And in fact, when we look at those stars, the stars that we're looking at nearby are all within and around us in the disk of our galaxy. The stars that we see when we look out at night, things like Orion, things like the Big Dipper, those are all very close to us. We're only seeing when we look out a very small portion of the galaxy, of our galaxy. And a lot of that is that when you see the Milky Way, that is the combined light of billions of stars. We can't see the individual stars in it, but we can see their, their combined light. So the disk is one portion here. The halo around that is kind of a spherical distribution. That's where the globular clusters are. There are some stars there as well, uh, but not near as many, not the concentration of material that we see near the center of our galaxy. So this is going to tell us something about how our galaxy formed. That long ago, our galaxy had to be a lot more spherical. That's when the globular clusters formed. So that's where the globular clusters came from. That's when, the, that's when they were formed, when the galaxy had a different shape than it does today. And since then, it's collapsed down to a disk, compressed down to a disk, and that is, again, that's the way we see things now, and that's where everything is left at this point. Now, the other parts of the galaxy are the bulge. So we not only have this disk, but there is a central region that bulges out a little bit, uh, an extended distribution of matter that's around the center. When we get down to the center, there's actually a supermassive black hole there. Now, we had talked about stellar-sized black holes, things that are... The mass of the sun, 10, 20, 30, with gravitational waves, you know, 20 and 30 times the mass of our sun. The black hole at the center of our galaxy, about 4 million times the mass of our sun. So significantly larger in mass than the black holes that we normally see. It's a great concentration of matter that exists there. Yeah? They would have formed probably very, it was probably just the fact that you had so much material compressed to the center that nothing else, I mean, you formed a black hole and then it would gather, you know, more material from it. So they do date back to the early history of our galaxy, at least, which is 10, 12 billion years. So it wasn't like there was just a star and then... It wouldn't have been one massive star that became this kind of black hole because even that early you couldn't make a star more than about 300 times the mass of our sun. So, yeah, it wasn't just one star that became this. It was probably, 
know, may have started as a black hole, and then it may have slowly gathered more material over time. And in fact, very early on in the history of the universe, everything, right, everything's expanding now, we'll talk about that. Everything was closer together. Galaxies were constantly colliding. So you could be throwing more material into this black hole. So they probably grew a lot faster long ago than they do now. But yeah, so they do date back. To the, I mean, the origins of it go back to the very early history of the universe, but not like one mass, super gigantic star that would have been millions of times the mass of the sun. We just can't, you can't form something that large. The radiation pressure will destroy yeah, it. Yeah, I wouldn't say like a big star. Yeah. I mean, and then slowly, yeah, and kind of probably similar, and we didn't really go through planets, but you know, there's, when our planet formed, you know, there's one clump of material that started the Earth, and it was, you know, something like fist-sized, and it gathered, it happened to be the one that became dominant and started gathering more material. Probably the same thing with a black hole. One black hole formed, and then it collected, you know, it had several supernovae around there that formed black holes, and they're close together in the center, so they would have slowly Eventually, it would have gone from tens to twenties to hundreds to thousands. And, it, and then now, over time, up to millions of times the mass of our sun. So, yeah, but they do date back that old. They do date back that old. They, the, the black holes at the center of the galaxies pretty much exist from the time the galaxy forms. So, that's the center, and we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. The other part of the galaxy is the dark matter halo. This is actually most of the material in our galaxy is in a halo that extends way beyond what I've pictured here. So this is the halo of our galaxy with the globular clusters, but way out beyond that, there's even more material that is what we call dark matter. Now, I'll come back and talk about dark matter in the next couple of chapters. So this week and next week, we will go over that a little bit more. But it's dark in that it doesn't give off any kind of energy. And that means it doesn't give off light. You can't see it. No visible light. No radio waves. No x-rays. It doesn't give off any electromagnetic radiation. So it, it's something different than ordinary matter because it does not give off any of that kind of radiation. So we can't see it at all. How do we know it exists? Well, we see its gravitational effects. In fact, there are was one of our pictures, not one, not one we actually covered in class, but one of the other days uh, over the last couple weeks where they showed spiral galaxies. These spiral galaxies are spinning too fast to exist. They're spinning fast enough that they should have just, all the stars should have just spread out into space and they'd be gone because of how fast they're spinning. Right? If you spin something really fast, spin it fast enough, eventually you'll rip it apart. Well, if you spin a galaxy fast enough, you do the same thing. Galaxies are spinning far too fast for the amount of material, if we just count up all the stars we see, all the globular clusters, the black hole at the center, the material in the disk, the material in the bulge, you add all of that up, there is not near enough material to hold the galaxy together. It should, spread, it should be spreading apart. However, we see galaxies. They exist. They're stable. And since they exist now, they've been around. We can tell they've been around for billions of years. So there has to be some other form of matter that we can't see that is out there. We're seeing its gravitational effects, and that's it. And we'll talk about that a little later as to you know, what the evidence is for this dark matter. Because it comes down to one of two things. Right? When something doesn't match with the physics, there's two things. Either there's something unknown, like dark matter, that we don't know about, or our physics is wrong. So you could also argue that you know, maybe 
general relativity doesn't work on these gigantic scales. And there are people who are working on other theories of gravity to try to be able to explain this without dark matter and with only limited success so far. So it could be one of two things. As of right now, the general consensus is that dark matter is what is out there. There is some kind of mysterious material that we can't detect through ordinary means other than its gravity. But it seems to be out there, not just within our galaxy, but within other galaxies, within clusters of galaxies, that it is a major component of the universe uh, comprising you know, most of the matter in the universe is dark matter. The stuff that we're studying in stars and nebulae and hydrogen clouds and anything else that's ordinary matter that we're used to talking about is about 4% of the universe. That's about it. Everything else is dark matter, and we'll see later another, another type of object, that we, another type of compound called dark energy that we'll talk about. So most of what we study in this class is only a tiny fraction of what apparently exists out in the universe. So what does our galaxy look like? Well, here's an image of it taken from inside. We don't get another choice. I can't, we can't take a rocket ship and travel out and look back down on our galaxy and what it, see what it looks like. Um, if you pick out a star here and imagine that's the sun, you know, we have not traveled, even with our most distant spacecraft, outside, even close to outside the dot that you see there. Even the Voyager craft, you know, reaching the edge of our solar system, they haven't even traveled one light year. Not even close to one light year. They're still within our solar system, still well within the bounds of our solar system or just at the edge of our solar system. So we have not even begun to travel. Even if they were able to look back and take pictures, they're still seeing just our solar system. They haven't gotten near to the nearest star. So we've traveled a very, very small amount. You may, again, imagine that dot. We haven't traveled outside that dot to this kind of scale. So you would have to be able to travel hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands light years out and then you'd be able to look back, and you'd probably see something like this. This is an artist's conception based on measurements that we have made of our galaxy. So we can use things like radio waves that penetrate the dust. So if you had x-rays, you could penetrate through the walls of this room and find out, is there another room on that side? Is there another room up above us? Is there something down below us? You know, we don't know those things without being, and since we can't travel there. Well, we can make radio measurements, so we can send, our sun is right about in there, and we can send radio measurements, and we can map out the material within the spiral arms. So while we can't directly see things here, we can map those out through radio waves. A little easier to map out the ones on, these, on this side. And we can then make predictions as to what our galaxy looks like. So this is not a view of, this is an artist's conception of what our galaxy would look like based on all the measurements that have been made so far. And we're what's classified as not only a spiral galaxy, but a, what's called a barred spiral. And we'll talk about those in the next chapter. There's spirals, galaxies are divided into two types. You either have spiral arms that kind of wind down to a point at the center, and you have some that wind off the ends of a bar. We happen to fall in the second class, that there seems to be a bar of material going through the center. Why do some have bars and some don't? That's a great question that astronomers are researching. Why do some of them form a bar and why do some of them not? That's a very good question, and we don't know. We don't even know for sure 
how spiral arms or why spiral arms form in the first place. You know, why do some galaxies have spiral arms and some not? So there are still some big questions on galaxy formation that is things that our astronomers are still studying. Um, then they're named, if you look at the names of them, they're actually named after various, uh, most of them are named after various constellations. You have a little bit of Orion here. That's the Orion region, the one relatively close to us. And then out in the distance, there's Perseus, Sagittarius, Centaurus, uh, Norma. Those are all different constellations uh, that they happen. All it means is that part of the arm is in that general direction on the sky. So we can get a good idea of what our galaxy looks like in, our, in, in general, because we can make those measurements. We can take radio measurements of the hydrogen gas, and we can map out where the concentrations of the gas are. Those concentrations will map out the spiral arms. There's a lot more material within the spiral arm hydrogen gas than there is outside of it in between the spiral arms. So we have a pretty good idea of what it looks like. We can map out the distinct spiral arms that occur. We can map out that bar that occurs through the center. So that's the galactic bar. There's actually a couple. It's kind of on two different, uh, two different views, the way the bar goes. And we can also ask the question, why do we get spiral arms in some galaxies? Not every galaxy looks like this, as we'll see in the next chapter. There's a whole class of galaxies that have, a couple classes that have no spiral arms. In fact, the only classes of galaxies that have spiral arms are spiral galaxies and barred spirals. Other ones don't have any spiral arms. There's our elliptical galaxies. They're just a big blob of stars, like a giant globular cluster. Super giant, a little tiny globular cluster, elliptical galaxy. So it's like a massive, massive globular cluster but they don't have any kind of structure like this. They're just a blob. And there are also our irregular galaxies, which have some of the stars in formation, but don't have any coherent structure to them. So there are some things as to you know, what are the differences between these different types of galaxies. And what we think, you know, how can you form spiral structure in the first place? Well, one early thought was that, oh, it's just, it could be differential rotation. Everything rotates at a different speed. Right? If you're close to the center, you'd be you're closer, to the closer to the strong source of gravity, you should be rotating faster. So eventually, you'd have blobs of material, and they'd get stretched out. The stuff out here is rotating more slowly. The stuff down here is rotating quickly. And you eventually start to form spiral arms. And you could form, in a rotation or two, you could form some nice spiral arms. But they wouldn't last. The problem is this process would continue and eventually you'd wrap everything up really tight. Well, after just a few galactic rotations, our galaxy, our sun rotates around our galaxy about once every 250 million years or so. So it would make four rotations over a billion years and after a couple billion years, this would continue to wind up tighter and tighter and tighter and the spiral arm structure would disappear. It would all be really, really tightly bound together. This would have made so many more laps. So there has to be something else that holds it together for the lifetime of a galaxy. Because we see lots of galaxies out there that do have spiral arms. It's not just a few galaxies. If it was just one or two galaxies, well, we could explain it. But how do we think that they could actually not just form, but remain over time? 
And the way to explain that is through what we call density waves. That the spiral arms are actually waves of density that travel through the galaxy. So the material bunches up. Think about cars in a traffic jam. Not a, not a stopped one. The best one to think about these is you've got that real slow, uh, slow-moving, uh, oversized vehicle that backs up traffic. So you can get around it, but you're slow. You get a bunch of cars building up behind it as they start to go through. That's sort of what this is like. You've got that traffic jam there, and it's moving because that, that truck is still moving forward. It's just moving a lot slower than the overall speed of the cars. Right? The cars coming up to it are moving, what, 65, 70 miles an hour, and then they go past it, and they're going 65, 70 miles an hour. They slow down and bunch up in that region. And then we see that as a concentration of density. More dust, more gas, more stars. They're all combined within the regions where that has built up. But it's moving along much slower, so it doesn't wrap up and wind up as fast as the actual stars, which may come around, they'll go through that, slow down, and then they'll come out of it and start speeding and speed up again. So that will do several different things. Not only will it account for, you know, that's why the spiral arms form in certain regions because of these, wa these density waves. It accounts for why they don't wrap up so fast. They're moving a lot slower. They're like that truck, that big oversized truck that might be moving at you know, 35 or 40 miles an hour up a hill. So it's slowing everything down, but it's moving a lot slower than everything else around it. And that would keep it from being there. Now, how do we see the density wave? The wave of density itself you don't see. But you can make it stand out because you're compressing all the material there. That's where the stars are building up. That's where the gas clouds are building up. They're banging into each other. They're compressing. They're forming stars. So new stars are forming within this compression. That's where all the stars are forming. That's where we see the big, massive blue stars within the spiral arms. They never make it outside of the spiral arm. They live such a short time that they actually live in, they are born and die within the spiral arm. They never get back outside of it. Our sun, on the other hand, lives a lot longer time. It's made many passes through these density waves. You know, it'll pass through each one, you know, one here, and then 100 million years later, it'll pass through another one, and then 100 million years later, it'll pass through this one again. This allows it to last over astronomical timescales. This kind of thing can account for spiral galaxies still existing after billions of years. We see spiral galaxies early on in the history of the universe. We see them today. So it can account for them being able to to last for that long of a period of time, and it accounts for the observed properties, why all the material is concentrated into the areas where these density waves have built up. That's where everything slows down, so we see more material. You know, the cars, the number of cars on a big stretch of highway averages out, but you see them all bunched up around this one area. As they go through it, then, then they're going a lot faster, so everything bunches up in there. That's exactly what we believe is happening with spiral arms. Now the good question is why did the spiral arms, what formed this kind of density wave in the first place? Best thing we probably have is maybe through collisions of galaxies. Galaxies colliding could increase the densities in certain areas and create that initial traffic jam. Again, it's one of those things we're still trying to study and learn about. So, finishing up the first section in our galaxy, um, our galaxy is an example of a barred spiral. 
and I'll explain a little more in the next chapter what those are about, but it's not something simple to determine because we're stuck inside it. It's not just an easy thing. What is our galaxy like? You know, it's even hard, you know, try to figure out what the Earth is like from on the Earth. That's hard. If you look at old maps of the Earth, they're horrible. Go back, you know, to the early stages of exploration, 14, 1500, 1600s. You, know, you couldn't just take a satellite image and say, oh, here's what things look like. You really didn't know. You really had to follow the coast and kind of try to make estimates on it. Well, it's kind of hard to see what our galaxy looks like unless you can get outside of our galaxy and look at it. I gave you some of the different parts. We had the halo, central bulge, galactic center, and dark matter halo, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next section. And then we talked about spiral arms that are maintained, at least, by density waves, kind of like cars in a traffic jam. All right, questions? All right. Well, let's look at how we can weigh a galaxy. How do we figure out the mass of our galaxy? And this is one of the things that will lead us into a little more about dark matter. And we'll talk about that more in the next couple of chapters as well. But how do you weigh a galaxy? Well, Kepler's third law. It's our only way to get mass. One of our, well, not our only way. One of our good ways to get masses out there in the universe. So you could look at the orbits of the stars. If we want to figure out the mass of our sun, we can look at the orbit of something around it. Right? Look at the Earth's orbit around that, and we can figure out the mass of our sun. If we want to figure out the mass of another star, we could look at the orbit of a planet around it or something, and we can use that and use Kepler's third law to get something for, to get the mass. So you can consider the orbit of a star. Uh, preferably, you want to pick one way out at the edge, because our sun, you could do our sun and calculate the mass, but it only calculates the mass inside the orbit. So if the sun is orbiting around with some period, some semi-major axis, I could get a mass, and it would tell me how much matter is in here but there's still more material outside the sun. So you want to go a little further out, a little further out. You want to get those most distant stars that you can see. And you figure out their orbital parameters, how long it takes them to orbit around this galaxy once, how far away they are from the center of the galaxy, and you could then get an even better estimate. So you'd look for the visible edge of the galaxy, find those most distant stars, and as you get far and far enough out, you're getting a better estimate. Right? With the sun, a lot of matter is within it, and here, even more matter. And if you're getting out to the edge, well, there's not much out beyond there. You've got some globular clusters, but in terms of the mass compared to what you've covered in here, you should be covering everything. So this works as long as there is very little matter out beyond the star, stars. And if you count even dozens of globular clusters, they don't add a lot of mass. And it may sound like that's weird. You're adding hundreds of thousands of stars, millions of stars for a bunch of globular clusters. But you have many hundreds of billions of stars in here. So that little bit of extra mass doesn't matter too much. But what we're finding when we make these measurements is that we're not, the further out we go, there seems to be even more matter. And that is an example of what we call dark matter. And we figure this out by measuring what we call a rotation curve of the galaxy. That just means we look at how fast it's moving here, how fast our star is moving here, and we work our way out. And eventually, you get outside most of the mass. And at that point, you should follow this blue line. You'd get some little variations in here. But once you pass most of the mass, you're out to the visible edge of our galaxy right here, 
then things should start to move slower and slower, just like they do in our solar system. Mercury orbit, orbits very quickly. Um, Neptune orbits really slow. So the speed at which they orbit decreases as you get further and further out. And that's what we'd expect to see for our galaxy. Oh, this is the expectation if you get far enough out. What we actually find is the red line. The speeds are actually increasing. So as you get further out, now this is the visible edge of our galaxy. We can still find gas clouds. You can find other objects out there, individual ones. And as you keep measuring them, there's still more and more matter. So that's what we're finding is that there must be far more matter at great distances than the visible matter we see. And in fact, dark matter can represent many times the amount of matter that we see. For every star that you see, you need 20 stars worth of matter that's invisible out there beyond the edge of the galaxy to account for what we see. For every gas cloud that you see, Orion Nebula, well, you've got to have 20 Orion Nebulas worth of matter, including all the stars that make it up. You've got a 4 million solar mass black hole at the center. Well, you need that much matter times 20 outside that we do not see in order to account for why this rotation curve does what it does. Otherwise, it should just drop off if you get far enough away. So this dark matter, as I say, we only see it through its gravitational effects, but it's a lot of material. It's not just that you need, oh, we need a few solar masses worth of material to explain that. That wouldn't be any big deal. We need 20 times. You take the mass of our galaxy that we can see, add up all the stars, all the gas, all the dust, everything we measure through radio observations, x-ray observations, infrared, everything. Then you need 20 of those scattered around the galaxy to be able to explain the observations that we make. So again, it comes down to one of two things. Either there's some kind of dark matter there to explain this, or gravity doesn't behave on that kind of scale the way it does in our solar system, because this is what we see for our solar system. Once you get outside most of the mass, that means outside the sun, right? Sun's 99.8% of the mass in the solar system. So once you're outside it, you're pretty much out there, and you can start to see Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Everything declines nice and smooth and fits Kepler's law perfectly. The galaxies do not do that. They're showing this, us that there is a lot more material out there than we can see. And it's not just our galaxy. It's other galaxies, too. So it's, our galaxy isn't doing something special. If we measure this for other spiral galaxies, we see exactly the same thing. That there is a lot of material out there that we cannot see. So what could it be? Well, one thing we know it cannot be is ordinary matter. And that means any kind of an ordinary matter because we detect it. If it's lots of hydrogen gas, you could have you know, billion solar masses worth of hydrogen gas out there. It would go off radio emission. 21 centimeters line. It doesn't take much energy to be able to give that off. You'd be able to detect it. You'd also detect it through absorption lines. Even if it wasn't giving off any energy, light coming through those big clouds of dust, the hydrogen gas would absorb those lines, would absorb those specific wavelengths. We'd be able to see that, even if there was all that gas out there. So it can't just be spread out gas and, gas and material. If it was dust, well, it would block out light. We, wouldn't, we would be able to detect it not through what it's doing, but not through it itself, but through what light it's blocking. Well, how about more compact things that wouldn't do that? 
black holes. Okay, black holes would, you know, unless you're looking at that exact line of sight, wouldn't be able to do anything. Well, black holes, we know it can't be those because we detect them through x-rays. As material is spiraling into them, even low quantities of material, we'd give off x-rays. We'd also, if those black holes formed, we should have a lot more heavy elements. And remember, anything ever other than helium, we should have lots of carbon, more carbon, more oxygen, more silicon than the small percentages we have today. Lots of black holes would have meant lots of supernovae long ago. So while they'd be harder to detect, we'd still, would, based on the abundances that we see, there can't be that many black holes out there. It doesn't match with our uh, current abundances of how much of the heavy elements there, they are. So it can't be really massive things, but how about lower mass things? How about brown dwarf stars? Really faint. We can't see them unless they're sitting right on top of us almost. Planets, if there are just rogue planets scattered all around, really small objects that formed within these gas clouds. They'd be almost impossible to detect through anything. I mean, they're giving off some light, but not much. And if you put them way out in the halo of our galaxy, tens of thousands of light years away, they're not going to be visible. We can't see them if they're tens of light years away very easily. So that would be one possibility, except you'd need a lot of them. The smallest, the biggest brown dwarfs are less than a tenth the mass of our sun. So you would need, what, about 12 of them just to make up our sun, just to make up one sun, and you need 20 of those. So just to count, account for the matter based on our sun, you would need what did I say? 12, you need 12 of them times 20. You're talking, you know, 250 of these brown dwarfs, the most massive ones, to account for just the mass we need based on our sun. You've got to do that for every other star, every other star cluster, everything in our galaxy. That's a lot of them out there. Okay, that might be possible. But then we would be able to detect their gravitational lensing. If there's that many hundreds of billions or trillions of them out there, they're going to pass in front of stars from time to time. And those stars, we would see a lot more gravitational lensing than we do. So we can put a limit based on this because when they pass in front of a star, they would brighten its light momentarily. We could make that detection. And we observe stars constantly. We would be able to see that brightening when these things passed in front of it. It wouldn't be a lot. But, and we do see these events. We do see gravitational lensing events where things get slightly brighter for an instant. But with the amount, a number that we would need to account for the mass we're trying to account for, it just wouldn't be possible. So what's left, again, it's, we can put limits on how much ordinary matter it can be. And that doesn't mean there's none of these. This could be some small portion of it that's not detected. There could be some small amounts of hydrogen. There could be some black holes out there. There, could be some, there are some brown dwarfs and planets that we can't detect out there. But it has to be a tremendous number of them. It would have to be, the amounts are not near enough. And these all have to be outside our galaxy. This is not more stuff that we're finding inside our galaxy. These are things that are out beyond the visible edge of our galaxy. That's where all the gravitational force is coming from. So it's not like you can put more brown dwarfs within our galaxy. We can account for those by the orbits of the stars. You're accounting for that material when you look at those stars and how they're orbiting. You're accounting for everything inside your orbit, whether you see it or you don't. You're seeing its gravitational effects. So what it comes down to is exotic subatomic particles, some kinds of weird subatomic particles that may have mass, may have a lot of mass. 
We talked about one of these when we talked about the sun, the neutrino. Neutrinos have a little tiny bit of mass. They're, they're a minuscule amount of mass, but they do have a small amount. But the thought is that maybe there are some other unusual particles that behave like the neutrino. Remember, it didn't like to interact with anything. Of the billion billion that go through that chlorine tank, one interacts. So the other billion billion just pass right through it and don't do anything. They're really hard to detect. What if there are other ones that instead of being low mass, were much higher mass that make up these things? They still wouldn't interact with anything. Neutrinos don't give off any visible light, so you wouldn't be able to see them under normal circumstances. But they'd be able to exist. This is kind of what um, astronomers and physicists are leading towards right now, is thinking about some different types of exotic particles that might account for this. And as I said, the other thing that's being done, there are some people who are working on new theories of gravity that may eliminate the need for all of this because that's your one choice. We see how the stars are orbiting. So either gravity works different on the grand scale and general relativity works, does not work on that kind of scale or something else is there. Some other type of dark matter is there. Now when we see this, Again, this is not just our galaxy, this is a lot of other galaxies as well. And what it means is that most of the mass of the universe, 96% of the mass of the universe, is stuff that we can't see, other than its gravity. It's undetectable to us. These are some examples of some galaxy clusters out in the distance. And the blue around them is the dark matter halo. And again, like our sun, it actually gets worse when you get to galaxy clusters. For our galaxy, maybe it's 10 or 20 times the amount of matter. When you get out to other galaxy clusters, it's 50 to 100 times. So for every galaxy you see, you need 50 galaxies worth of material. Everything included with that galaxy, all the stars, all the globular clusters, all the uh, nebulae, all the black holes, everything there, you need to do those 50 times over scattered around this blue area to account for the motions that we see within the galaxy and to account for the way light travels through that galaxy and may be distorted. So we're really only studying, you know, until we start talking about dark matter, we're only looking at 4% of the universe. Most of the mass of the universe is something that right now we cannot detect. And it's not just our galaxy, it's almost every galaxy we see. Every galaxy seems to have these halos of dark matter, everything that we can detect. So it's not just one galaxy or a few odd galaxies, it seems to be everything that is, occurred, that, is, that is there. And we'll come back and we'll try to talk a little bit about dark matter when we talk about other galaxies in the next couple of chapters. All right, moving a little closer to the inner part, let's look at what we know about the inner part of our galaxy, and that is the galactic center. So here we're looking out towards the center of our galaxy. Uh, this, these red dots here are stars in the constellation of Sagittarius. And the center of our galaxy is located uh, right about off the tip. That's actually called the teapot of Sagittarius from the shape. And off the tip of the spout of the teapot up there is the center of our galaxy. Nothing prominent there. You can't see it with visible light. I tell you, it's invisible at visible wavelengths. If you try to point an optical telescope at the center of our galaxy, you see nothing. It's not that there's nothing there. It's that there's so much dust. That's what we're seeing within all these darker areas are dust. So that's the concentrations of dust. And you can imagine, you can see how it goes from being very faint and gets brighter and brighter and brighter here. That would continue. So this would be 
some of the brightest regions of the sky. Yeah. Um, the stars and the, what you call the teapot. Yeah. Are they all red giants, or is that just the? They're no, they're just marked in red to make them stand out. Okay. So they're not. That doesn't mean that they're red giants. No. So again, this would get brighter. This would be the brightest spot in the sky if you didn't have that dust there. If you look out in early fall, August, September, and you look out to the south, this is what you'd see over the horizon. You're never going to see anything standing out there. It doesn't look very bright because there's too much material within the disk of our galaxy blocking out that light. However, even though it's visible, invisible there, we can use things like infrared light or radio wavelengths. And this is actually radio waves using radio wavelengths, very long ones. The longer the wavelength, the better it penetrates the dust. So 90 centimeters. So we're talking almost, you know, almost a meter wavelength of light. And then we can map the center of our galaxy. So what we saw as almost nothing here, invisible, when we zoom in, we get a very bright radio source there known as Sagittarius A. Sagittarius A, that's how we named the radio sources when we started detecting them. Sagittarius A was the brightest radio source in the constellation of Sagittarius. Sagittarius B would have been the next brightest. C, D, and you would have done the same things for other constellations. And if you look at what they are here, Sagittarius A, there's Sagittarius B, there's C, there's D, there's E. The five brightest radio sources in Sagittarius we're all associated with the galactic center. Now, that's, that's one point here. That's one little point around there. That's looking at some little tiny laser dot point right off here. Constellation of Sagittarius get, covers a big chunk of the sky, but all of those radio sources are concentrated into a very small portion of the sky. And we also zoom in. If you zoom in, we call Sagittarius A star is actually the black hole. So the black hole, this isn't seeing the black hole. We're seeing just the energy being emitted around that black hole. If you actually can zoom in on this more, then you, you would be able to see the disk of material, the stars that are orbiting around that black hole. And we also see stars, star clusters, supernova remnants. There's lots of supernova remnants here. There's one there. There's one there. A new supernova here. Try to see where's the other one. There's another supernova remnant here, an older one that spread out more. Another older one. <coughs> Excuse me. So there's a lot of them that have spread out that have spread out over time. Some are relatively young. They could go off there. We would never see them with visible light. So even if these occurred within the last little bit, we haven't been able to see them because there's so much dust there. They could be visible in radio waves or infrared. But we can't, see, uh, we can't see them with visible light. So when we look at this, if we try to look at it a little bit closer, we can actually start to see some of those stars. So we can actually start to make images, infrared images, looking very close to that central part of our galaxy. When you get close enough, it gets really hard to see. Even with infrared wavelengths, even the infrared gets enough dust there, it starts to get blocked out. But what we find is these stars are moving very quickly. We can track their orbits. We can map them, and we can watch how these stars are moving. And we can use their orbits to determine the mass of the object. 
So if we look here, these are actually picking out a few of those stars, and the different colors track each star in its orbit. And 14 is an interesting one here because these orbits are very small. We're talking about things where the whole orbit may take a few years. So if you think about that, that means in this little portion, the whole orbit takes a few years. Remember Kepler's second law? It's moving really slow out here, and it's moving really fast in here. That means that something down here, a dot at the center, is taking a star that's going this way and flipping it around really fast. You know, might only take it a couple, you might be talking moving a couple days or a week here, that a star was, that was going really fast in one direction turned around and got head out, headed out the other direction. The size of that is smaller than our solar system. So the whole region down here, uh, these are looking out to, you can't really see Neptune in there, um, you see Pluto in the purple, I mean, those are really small. Uh, those are orbits of some, at the same scale. We're looking at some things, this central portion, where that thing has to be turning around, because it can't be any bigger, right? If that was a big object, it would hit it. This was a gigantic object this big, then guess what? When it came in this close, crash, and it's gone. It doesn't come around. We can watch it orbiting. So whatever is down here has to be comparable to the size of our solar system out to Neptune. But it has to have enough mass to take a star and whip it around. Our sun wouldn't be able to do that. If something went in close to our sun, oh, it might curve its orbit a little bit, yeah. But it's not going to take it and flip it around and come, it back, come back out that fast. So there has to be a lot of mass there. And you can figure it out. You can use all these different orbits. You can figure out the period. You can figure out the semi-major axis. And overall, when you average them all together, you find out that it has to account, to, to account for the motions. It has to be a black hole of about 4 million solar masses. It has to be that much material compressed down to something the size of our solar system. Nothing else you could put there that would exist. Right? You couldn't put a bunch of little black holes there, or even neutron stars. They would coalesce together. How do you get them moving around so that they don't, their gravity doesn't just pull them in and make a black hole? So that's kind of talked about earlier, how the, how the black hole might have formed was through things like this. You'd have the black hole, the smaller one that formed, and more material would have added, more black holes would have added to it, and it would have grown over time. And eventually these stars probably will add into it. Eventually more things will add into it. And in fact, we see that things like our, the black hole grows at about one solar mass per year, roughly, on average. So it con continues to consume some gas. It can take things like stars every once in a while, well, every 10,000 years or so. This is how we really can see the activity of the black hole is through when it's collecting material. The black hole itself is invisible to us. Remember, it doesn't give off any light, doesn't give off any radiation. It's the black hole itself. Once you get past that event horizon, nothing. You can't know anything about it. Nothing can escape. But as material spirals in, we can see, we can see that. So as this gas and larger objects maybe are torn apart by it, they get heated up as they spiral in towards the event horizon. They heat up, give off x-rays that we can then detect. So the fact that it's actually accreting matter, gathering matter, is what's important. That'll give us a burst in the activity, the x-ray emission, this would have happened a lot more early on in the history of our galaxy.
when galaxies were colliding all the time. They still do, but not at the extent they did before. And I give you up here a little bit of, you know, how do we explain this? You've got four million uh, solar masses. Based on the orbits, that is in an area less than three-tenths of an astronomical unit. Mercury's orbit is about a little under four-tenths of an astronomical unit. So you've got to put four million stars within the orbit of Mercury without them combining into a black hole if you want to explain it as being something else other than a black hole. How can you, you just can't, we can't imagine any other way that you could get that much mass in that small of a space. So nothing else that we know of could exist in that kind of area. So finishing up this section, um, we determine the mass of our galaxy, and we can do this for other galaxies too if we look at things that are orbiting. We look at how galaxies are moving. We can usually figure out the orbit, the masses of the galaxies using the stars and using Kepler's third law. Um, what we find is that most of the mass of our galaxy is a dark matter halo, something we do not understand exactly what it is composed of. Maybe some kind of weird subatomic particles, but we don't know for sure. And at the center of our galaxy, we do know, has a black hole of 4 million solar masses, but that, that's minuscule compared to the other masses that we're talking about. The mass of stars, there's hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, so they overwhelm the mass of the central portion. So it's unlike our solar system where all the mass is at the center, although that may seem really large, when we're talking about how much material there is in our galaxy, even just the visible material, this is a relatively small amount. All right, questions? All right, well, our last section here we want to look at is stellar populations. We want to look at the couple different types of stars that we see. And we find that there are really two different, our, our galaxy has two different populations, two different groupings of stars. One is the disk stars. And these all orbit in roughly circular orbits. And they orbit all in a flat disk. They all orbit within that disk of the galaxy, within the disk, within the spiral arms. That's most of the stars that we see are following things like this. But there are some stars that we call halo stars that orbit at all sorts of odd angles. Right? Everything here is in a nice circular, pretty much circular orbit in a flat disk. Here they're in very elliptical orbits and they're orbiting at all sorts of angles. So this leads us to the idea that there were two population of, populations of stars, an older population, which are the halo stars that formed first, and a younger population that formed more recently, which are these. So it has to do, kind of leading us to ideas of how our galaxy would have formed. So these two types of stars um, were actually looked at by uh, Walter Bada, who studied the Andromeda galaxy. So it's, again, it's harder to see within our galaxy, but we're gonna, so we're going to study it by comparison to another similar galaxy relatively close to us. And he was able to take images of the Andromeda galaxy, and he found that there were two, two distinct populations. Population one was stars in the disk. Population two was the halo stars and that there were very distinct differences between those two. And the differences led to things like, within the disk, they had circular orbits. Well, population two in the halo 
did not have, had eccentric orbits, very tilted orbits. These had, population ones had a wide range of ages. There could be some old stars, there could be some young stars. These were all old stars in the halo. So halo stars were all very old. Uh, also, these had a high metal abundance, very high metals. And again, metals, anything other than hydrogen or helium. And the population two stars in the halo had a much lower metal abundance. So if you're looking for ones that are going to form Earth-like planets, you're looking at population one stars. They have a higher metal abundance. They're going to have things like silicon and iron that make up planets like the Earth. Population two stars don't have as much, would be less likely to form an Earth-like planet. Now, this is an oversimplification. There's probably a whole range in between these two. You know, just as we start off uh, with anything, we make our general groups and our general classifications. You have O stars, B stars, A stars. Then we start to subdivide those. Well, maybe it's an A star, but this one's an A1, and this one's an A2, and an A3, and you could subdivide them. So in reality, there probably are variations in between them. And then the question you know, people will ask is, is there a third population? Are there population three stars, which would be even older? What about those first stars that formed that shouldn't have, should have almost no metals? Not just that these are low, they have some, but where are the stars that don't have any metals, those ones that formed right after the Big Bang? So it leads us to talk a little bit about a couple of different ways that the galaxy could have formed. And there's two that we're looking at. One is kind of similar to the formation of a star. We call the monolithic model. So the galaxy kind of formed all at once. Remember how a star formed, took a cloud of gas, collapsed it down, star formed at the center, planets formed around it. Um, this would be very similar, but on a massive, massively larger scale. Instead of just a couple solar masses worth of material or a solar mass or two, you're talking about billions of solar masses worth of material condensing down. But the whole thing otherwise works the same. As material con condenses down, as it starts to collapse, it's spinning. It's going to spin faster and faster as you get to the center, as it collapses. And you're going to form some of that material. The first stars that form, the globular clusters formed when our galaxy was spread out. So those globular clusters formed here. And as it collapsed, the globular clusters don't collapse. They don't condense down to the central portions. So they're just orbiting around. But the gas clouds collide, lose energy, and collapse down into the disk, giving us what we see today. So the, the globular clusters remain in a halo around our galaxy, but most of the rest of the material has collapsed down into a disk and to the core. So it's kind of like forming a star with the solar system on a much grander scale. However, this doesn't necessarily explain everything that we see with, see with galaxies. So really, we think there are some other things going on as well. And one is that galaxies not only form through maybe a collapse like this, but that's not just how you form a galaxy. That galaxies actually started out a lot smaller than they are today. Our galaxy was originally a much smaller object and grew through collisions. So, that would have been the nice peaceful way to form a galaxy. Here's the more violent way to form a galaxy. That galaxy collisions are really common. Galaxies collide all the time. And early in the history of the universe, they collided even more than they do today. Why? Well, long ago, our universe was smaller. It's expanding, so it was smaller long ago. So galaxies were closer together. They were more likely to collide than they are today. 
So galaxies could have collided. And in fact, we see evidence of that today with our galaxy is still colliding with other galaxies. Uh, the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy is one example of that that is being torn apart by the tidal forces of our Milky Way. So as it orbits around, you know, there's the remnants of the galaxy, but when it comes in close, one side gets pulled harder than the other, and it gets ripped apart. And eventually, all these streams of material would be incorporated within our galaxy. So some of these streams that we actually see out there, um, these tidal streams, are remnants of old galaxies that used to orbit our Milky Way. Small galaxies that, the, that we are in the process of consuming and becoming part of our galaxy. So we see evidence really of both of these type of models. The, the galaxy probably formed through that because we see the globular clusters. This wouldn't explain the globular clusters that we see. But it also grew through um, something like this, through collisions of other galaxies. And when we look back in the past, look at very distant galaxies long ago, we see a lot of evidence that they were colliding as well. Um, what this does is it stirs up the galaxy. So it stirs up the stars and the, ga and the, and the uh, stars and gas in the disk. It actually thickens. The disk a little bit gets thicker and then settles back down. So through the collision, a lot of energy, the disk gets a little bit thicker and then the gas collapses back down. And that's when more stars will form. And there are more collisions coming. Uh, there's another dwarf galaxy that is gradually merging with us. And then I give you the image here, again, an artist's conception from NASA, that there's our Milky Way that we looked at before. And if you know where to look in the fall, you can actually see the Andromeda galaxy. It's a small, fuzzy point of light. It's actually visible to the naked eye. Not easily, but it's there if you know where to look. However, we're getting closer and closer to it. So this is an image of what we'd see in three or four billion years from now. As it keeps getting closer and closer, it'll cover a larger size in the sky. So if you could come back to Earth in three billion years and look, you'd, the Andromeda galaxy would be easily visible. Now, we'll be looking at galaxy collisions in the upcoming chapters, but as they collide, it's, I say collisions, and you get one picture in your head, right? Smash together, like two cars crashing. That's not what happens. Galaxies, like most other things, are empty space, so they really just kind of whoosh through each other. They're almost all empty space. Some of their star clouds, some of their gas clouds will collide and have more star formation going on. But essentially, they'll pass right through each other. And then they'll pull and go back again. And eventually, these two galaxies will merge into one. So we think that you know, Milky Way and Andromeda, if you could come back in five or six billion years and look at the two galaxies, that they'd be gone. You'd have one galaxy there where we used to have two. And we think that's how galaxies have grown over time. Yeah? They're, they're decent-sized spiral galaxies. For spiral galaxies, they're pretty decent-sized. They're not gigantic by any sense for galaxies. There are galaxies that we'll see that are much, much larger. Usually they're big elliptical galaxies. Spiral galaxies only come in about one size. I mean, you might get something that's twice the size of the Milky Way or half the size of the Milky Way, but elliptical galaxies have a much bigger range. You can get things that are you know, many times the size of our Milky Way, not just twice. Spiral galaxies are all vaguely the same size. And I don't mean exactly, but you know, if you know what I mean. It's maybe twice the size, maybe half the size. You're not going to find a spiral galaxy that's 10 times larger than our Milky Way 
or most likely one-tenth the size of our Milky Way. You're not going to find that kind of range. But they are decent-sized spiral galaxies. I think the Andromeda galaxy is a little bit bigger. But eventually, they will coalesce into, into one. Again, billions of years from now, and by the time they finally coalesce, by the time this collision is done, right? Collision doesn't over in a fraction of a second like it is here on Earth. This collision could take billions of years and then a billion years for things to settle down, and our sun will be gone because our sun will be evolving off uh, by that point. Good. Other questions? Otherwise, I'm going to finish this up here. Uh, we can divide the galaxy into two populations. We have population one, the disk stars, population two, the halo stars. And that we looked at two ways galaxies have formed, and we really think it's probably a combination of these two, that maybe the initial part of the galaxy formed from some kind of collapse, which gave us the globular clusters. But collisions were very important for explaining the, some of the structure that we see in our galaxy today. We see tidal streams. And when we look back at those earliest galaxies, the ones that formed right after the Big Bang, they were much smaller than the galaxies we see today. So we think that they have to have built up over time. The really large galaxies that we see close to us don't seem to have existed 13 billion years ago, right after the, right after the universe formed. So the first things that formed were not gigantic spiral galaxies, gigantic elliptical galaxies, but much smaller galaxies. And we're going to go over a lot of that in the next couple of chapters, which at this point I'll probably just go ahead and start on Wednesday. So we got through what we needed to cover this week already. Wednesday I'll start on chapter 26, so I will jump ahead into next week's so that we can hopefully between Wednesday and Monday be through our chapters we need for this coming week and have those, have those all set. That way we can really spend some time next week working on the uh, project. So, and there's Mercury still going. You've lost the edge of the sun there. If you keep watching, uh, come back, you know, in a couple of hours, you'll see it starting to approach the other limb of the sun. So, just to kind of show you a little bit about what's going on with that right now. So, otherwise, don't forget the article reviews. Make sure I get those in um, up on D2L sometime before 6 o'clock tomorrow so I can get you credit for those. And then once I grade those, I will drop your lowest article review. So you should see, if you skipped one, you should see a boost in your grade once that's done. Otherwise, have a good rest of the day, and I will see you Wednesday. <laughs>